Stephen Morrison. Welcome to Songs in the Key of, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions, my new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. So let's get on with it. This time round it's another dose of tunes that have been buzzing around my brain recently and when I say recently I do of course mean the last three or four months. I started preparing this podcast sometime back in January and it's taken an immensely long time to get it to your ears. Such is life. Anyway I digress. Here are 10 songs in the key of a few of my favourite things at the moment. And speaking of favourite things, occasionally at work I'll see someone with earphones in and at an appropriate point I'll ask them what they're listening to. I did this the other day with a colleague who sits near me and he told me he was listening to an R&B artist called Ari Lennox. So it seemed only polite to look her up on Spotify and see what all the fuss was about. The first Ari Lennox song that Spotify's algorithm thought I should listen to was her interpretation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic My Favourite Things from the musical The Sound of Music. And it is sublimely gorgeous, the audible version of Silk. Right from the opening electric piano introduction, you know you're going to be in for a right treat. Ari Lennox's vocal sounds so effortless, very much like earlier Alicia Keys. There's very little in the way of vocal acrobatics. Instead, she allows the song to positively shimmer. It's the sound of a million snowflakes gliding gently to the floor. It is absolutely delicious. And it goes rather a lot like this. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that on occasion I've referred to the band Clear Lake with an enormous amount of affection. In fact, this episode marks their fourth appearance on this podcast, a record matched only by Nina Simone and Joni Mitchell. Jason Pegg's lyrics and vocals are quietly devastating throughout the three albums that Clear Lake recorded. 
but they are at their absolute finest on the tune I'm going to feature today, which I believe is their greatest song. I'm not entirely sure why I've not featured it before. Clear Lake songs very often feature meditations on the theme of the frailty of the human mind, from the whimsical flight of fancy that is I Want to Live in a Dream from their first album Lido, through to the snarling, self-deprecating self-recriminations of The Mind is Evil on Cedars. But it is on Treat Yourself with Kindness that Jason Pegg really does wrench out his heart and plonk it unceremoniously on his sleeve. This song has, at times, prompted me to bouts of prolonged sobbing. Perhaps that's why I've not dared talk about it before. It is an anthem for anyone who has ever doubted themselves, anyone who has ever loathed themselves, anyone who has, for just a moment at least, been absolutely convinced that they are the absolute worst, that nothing good will ever come of them. Because this song is there to assure people like that, let's be brutally honest here, people like me, that this is not true. It turns out that despite all my protestations to the contrary, backed up with volume after volume of evidence all arranged alphabetically and neatly indexed, I am nowhere near as bad a human being as I might adamantly believe myself to be. Clear Lake's song builds and builds and builds with its intention and intensity, music and lyrics forming a marriage of mantras using quasi-religious language to make a very human point. Do unto thyself as you might wish thy will be done by someone else, runs the chorus. This song is for all the broken people out there. You know who you are.
In a recent episode of this podcast, I spoke with Stuart Turner about the pod album, The Earth's Rotation, which was then about to be released. As listeners to that episode will recall, The Earth's Rotation is the posthumous completion of a project by the phenomenal wordsmith Chris Broderick. Although he was able to record his vocals for around half of the songs he'd written with Stuart, Chris passed away before he was able to complete the second half of the album's recordings. Nevertheless, a binding promise was made to Chris that the album would be completed by whatever means possible, which resulted in Stuart taking the lead vocal on the remaining songs. One of the songs which Chris was able to record is one of the most beautiful moments on the record. It's called Your Luminescence and it is profoundly moving. A heart-wrenching account of regret in romance as our shame-faced narrator laments his inability to see what a good thing he had in a relationship that has now ended. It's a heartbreaking account of absolute remorse, a mourning of something beautiful that could have been and how things can come to a painful end because, as Chris Broderick sings, my sorry mind, my mind was elsewhere. Many, many, many of Chris Broderick's songs are filled with raw, honest emotion. That's one of the things that makes his writing on many a singing loin song so engaging and relatable. But there's something here that lifts your luminescence higher than usual. That vocal rasp, so often used by Chris for a kind of comic theatricality, is used to much subtler effect here, conveying the sense of anguish, pain, and self-flagellation of someone so devastated by his own foolishness and how it has affected the person he loved. You must have been so confused and disappointed. What on earth did you have to do to show me? Runs a rhetorical question in the song. It's wrung out with such anguish and sorrow and wise after the event self-awareness. It's a beautiful, beautiful song heartbreaking and devastating though it is. How did I miss your luminescence briefly between the rain and the sunlight you must have been so confused and disappointed What on this earth did you have to do to show me? Somehow I missed your luminescence Glimpsed and then gone The taste and then nothing If you appear again I know how to see you But I don't deserve The hope there'll be next time
It was my birthday a few weeks back and that meant there were lots of presents in the form of shiny round things for me to tuck into. Take for example the two albums that my wife Rachel gave me. Late Developers by Bell and Sebastian and The Wave by The Wave. As an old school Blur fan I'm always interested to see what Graham Coxon is up to. I generally find his projects much more compelling more interesting and more engaged than Damon Albarn's music, much as I may love the huge swathes of the lead singer's solo work and projects with Gorillaz, The Good, The Bad and The Queen and others. My curiosity around the Wave album in particular was raised when, after recording the recent Songs in the Key of Pod episode, Stuart Turner showed me his recent purchase of the Wave album on vinyl, assuming I'd like it because and I quote, it's quite miserable sounding. It's almost like my reputation precedes me. One of these days I'm going to have to do an episode entitled Songs in the Key of Joyousness, Merriment and General Bonhomie, purely out of spite. It turns out, of course, that I absolutely love the whole album. It's a gorgeously rich affair, as you could only come to expect from not just one quarter of the act that brought us to the end, the universal, and tender, but also the velveteen vocal Rose Eleanor Dougal, whose previous life as a pipette means there's plenty of luscious retro sounds lurking on her CV. If you don't believe me, listen to the absolute sumptuousness of You're All I Want to Know, which recalls doo-wop and baccarat and all manner of lovely things from the last 70 odd years of pop. But for this section of the show, Let's focus on the opening song from the album, Can I Call You? More of a medley of songs than a single song. It takes in a variety of styles and tempos from indie folk ballad through to post-punk insanity and Bowie-esque artistry, complete with Graham Coxon's spectacularly raucous rasping saxophone. There are a gut-wrenching set of lyrics on this song. It's the agonising account of someone spiralling out of control in the midst of a breakup, utterly, totally and absolutely desperate for things to be as they were. I'm tired of being in love, I'm sick of being in pain, won't you just kiss me, then kiss me again. I feel my heart, it dies in me, that's what they call atrophy. We've all been there, and if you say you haven't, I simply won't believe you. Thank you. 
In the last few solo episodes of Songs in the Key of, I found myself featuring pieces of classical music. This particular instalment is no exception, as today I'm going to play you an extract from Gabriel Faure's heartbreakingly beautiful Requiem. Faure's Requiem has long been rumbling around as a soundtrack in my head, ever since I sang it as part of my school choir. There's a particular poignancy surrounding it, as shortly after he performed the baritone solo in Liberame, our much-loved chemistry teacher Mr Henderson died. A recording of his performance was played back at the memorial service held for him. Recently, I've been re-watching some of the Swedish-language adaptations of Henning Mankell's Wallander novels starring Christopher Henriksen. In one particularly gripping episode, Mastermind, where a killer starts playing mind games with the detectives of the Estat police station, the Agnes Dei from Foray's Requiem plays an important part of the story, and it regularly appears throughout the episode. The Agnes Dei is an exquisite piece of music, opening with a gorgeous, smooth string introduction before a group of tenors deliver the softest silk melody of Agnes Dei Quitolis Peccata Mundi Dona Eis Requiem, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant unto them rest. As the lower and higher voices entwine with each other, there's a growing sense of searching sadness and sorrow in regards to the loss of a loved one. Requiems can often be loud, angry affairs, Brahms's German Requiem being a case in point. By contrast, Faure's Requiem is generally a more subdued affair. The composer himself referred to his work as a lullaby for death. It kind of reflects his outlook on life as an agnostic, what his son described as a doubter. With no clear view on whether there might be a heaven, hell, or any other kind of afterlife awaiting him after his time on earth had ended, Faure was left with a sense of peace that comes with the end of suffering. Any pain portrayed in the music is that of those left behind, those who must carry on life without their loved one. Despite the use of the standard Latin text of the Requiem, replete with its references to God, heaven and salvation, this is very much a work imbued with a secular outlook on life and death. A very human desire for peace and relief from the pain that life on earth can cause. There are moments, particularly here in the Agnes Day, in which the volume rises, but it does so out of a state of grief-stricken sorrow rather than the fire and brimstone rage you might find in other requiems. Later movements like In Paradisium are delivered with such light as a feather gentleness and delicacy, they perfectly epitomise the ideal of death being a final release from pain, sadness and loss. It is rather beautiful.
Quite a while back now on this podcast, I featured a tune, if tune is the right word, called Seca by a Colombian artist called Lucretia Dalt. It was a rather weird and wonderful piece of electronic experimentalism with Dalt manipulating a recording of her own voice into some rather chilling and disturbing sounds. In October of last year, Ms Dalt released a new album and it is a world away from Seca. This time there are more discernible tunes, melodies, harmonies and many of those things we bluff old traditionalists would expect to find in a song. That's not to say that Lucretia Dalt has now completely sold out and is about to take on Adele with a series of number one albums and residences at the O2 Arena. There's still plenty of weird and wonderful to go around here, just in a different way. In I which roughly translates from the Spanish as a sigh of dejection, Lucretia Dalt explores the metaphysics of the concept behind time, all to the accompaniment of traditional South American dance rhythms, all tangos and boleros and the like. The lyrics, when rendered in English, appear almost impenetrable. Take this verse from Galazzo, for example. Eater of skies and owner of bloodstones, snakes crawling, Snakes know no time. I can taste its magnetic field. I can see the charge of irons it steals from the air in the waning gibbous moon. I walk here with erotic indifference to your space, to your reality. Or perhaps this from the mess. I am Preta, pure consciousness, infinite regression, accidental herald of no time, or asymmetry. Disported is a measure of warmth. My choice for this episode, though, is Atemporal, a gorgeously rich-sounding song full of dusty-sounding Latino rhythms and jolting noises of springs going off. The whole thing sounds like it's just come to life after being left to fester in a gloomy basement for far too long. Which is kind of apt, really. The song is all about permanence and timelessness, with our heroine comparing herself to an unmoving rock. It's ever so reminiscent of some of the stillest moments in the recent Oscar winner, Everything Everywhere All At Once, where Michelle Yeoh's Evelyn and her daughter find themselves transformed, spoiler alert, into large stones in one of the universes where the conditions weren't right for life to form. Despite the complexity of the rhythms and almost mechanised joltiness, Dalt's message is simple and cuts through it all. I recognise myself in that timeless rock. It's a kind of mindfulness of being present in the now and stepping back from the busyness of everything. It's rather beautiful and I love it.
lately I found myself drawn back into a fascination with all things Nordic. That's already become apparent on this podcast by my reference to Foray's Requiem featuring on a particularly gripping episode of the Swedish detective drama Wallander. However, during a series of sleepless nights I found myself streaming endless episodes of the Scandinavian History Podcast and then listened to the Icelandic band Leaves, previously featured on this podcast, on repeat while at work. Added to that, I recently got stuck into a book called The Children of Ash and Elm by historian Neil Price, which outlines the fascinating history of the people we talk of as Vikings. My daughter has even, to a much lesser extent, got in on all the Nordic excitement. A few weeks back, we went to see a wonderful two-man show called Vinland, all about the Viking discovery of America some 500 years before Columbus. The show was made only slightly less wonderful by the fact that my daughter managed to get bitten by a mosquito halfway through the show. On top of this, she and I have also discovered a brilliant game called Odin's Ravens, which is as beautiful as it is compelling, while having such a straightforward set of rules, you'd think it would have been around for an eternity. It turns out that Odin's Ravens, the game, is inspired by some genuine bona fide Norse mythology concerning Hugin and Munin, two ravens whose names mean thought and memory, sent by Odin, or Allfather as he is sometimes known, to gather information from around the world. And it turns out this game, comprising various exquisitely designed cards and a couple of intricately carved wooden raven counters, is not the only thing that finds its inspiration in this aspect of Nordic legend. In 2020, the Icelandic band Sigur Ros, in collaboration with Hilmar Orn Hilmarsson, Steindor Andersen and Maria Hult Marken Sigfurstotir released a recording of Odin's Raven's Magic, a work they had first performed 18 years previously at the Barbican in London. Odin's Raven's Magic takes as its source an Icelandic poem written in the 14th or 15th century called Hrafnagaldur Odin's, which means Odin's Raven Incantation, or spell. It's a rather gloomy poem set against the backdrop of the mischievous Loki having set gods, elves and dwarves against each other in a massive feud and is full of ominous hints of bad times just around the corner. Odin suspects an evil scheme is afoot and sends Hugin, and possibly Munin too, out to find out what's going on. When that search proves inconclusive, Odin sends out three messengers, including Loki of all people, the cause of all the misery, to visit a wise woman to ask if she knows the origin, duration and end of heaven earth and hell. She replies in floods of tears, which doesn't exactly bode well. The messengers return to Asgard and have to interrupt a full-blown party to let everyone know that things are about to take a turn for the absolutely horrendous, quite possibly the much dreaded but inevitable arrival of the end of times, Ragnarok, which will see gods and men fight in the ultimate definition of a losing battle. Ezekiel Ross's handling of the poem with a little help from Hilmar Orn, Hilmarsson, Steindor Andersen 
and Maria Huld Marken Sigfos Dortier is a moody, doom-laden sequence of songs mixing the intensity of an operatic aria with experimental minimalism and the gorgeous use of a stone marimba. There are moments, such as the instrumental Tvigmal, which sound like typical Sigurds at their ethereal finest, but the recurring heartbreaking baritone melody first heard in Old Father Orca, a list of various groups of characters who are acting strangely in reaction to the forthcoming apocalypse, is a thing that really stands out from this work. It's intense, world-weary and agonised, and strangely, very, very beautiful. As we spent a farewell earlier on in this episode dissecting the splendour of a recently released song created in part by Blur's Graham Coxon, it's only fair that we consider the splendour of a recently released song created in whole by Blur's Dave Roundtree. We all know about Damon Albarn's projects, Gorillaz, The Good, The Bad and The Queen, Monkey and a few solo albums one of which being a concept album themed around a 17th century occultist called Dr. D. Similarly, many will know about Graham Coxon's collection of solo albums and other projects involving the creation of a graphic novel and its soundtrack, together with songs to soundtrack the Netflix show The End of the Fucking World. And we know about Alex James's foray into the world of football anthems in the form of Vindaloo, a collaboration with Keith Allen who, lest we forget, had previously starred in the video for Blur's Country House. There was also a single with Betty Boo under the short-lived project Wigwam and a rather splendid bit of bubblegum indie pop in the form of Me Me Me, a collaboration with Stephen Duffy and Elastica's Justin Welch. Their single, Hanging Around, really does need to put in an appearance on Songs in the Key of one of these days. As for Mr Roundtree, his career is the most eclectic out of all of Blur's members, given the amount of non-musical stuff he's been involved in. 
While Alex James may be famous for his exploits in the world of cheese production, that's as nothing compared to his fellow rhythm section members' adventures in law, politics, science and computer animation. Somehow, amidst all of that, he's managed to continue with music as well, with soundtracks to the recent Bross documentary and the BBC thriller The Capture. And then, of course, there's his debut album, which came out in January of this year, Radio Songs. It is brilliant. I absolutely love Radio Songs. It's an understated record, beautifully sparse in its lyrics, carefully considered in its musicality. There's a moody, apocalyptic feel to the whole album, conveying an intense sense of disconnection, loss and despair. If you're hoping an album called Radio Songs would be full of sing-along numbers about walking on sunshine and waking me up before you go-go, you'll be sadly disappointed. These songs are more likely to appeal to you if you like Vangelis's soundtrack to Blade Runner, the gloomier elements of the Pet Shop Boys back catalogue, or the sonic explorations of public service broadcasting. London Bridge is a case in point, possibly the busiest sounding song on the album, which conveys all the hustle and bustle of life in the nation's capital, while communicating the absolute loneliness you can feel despite being surrounded by people. It's a song documenting paralysis, a kind of 21st century electronic take on should I stay or should I go. There are pounding, heart-shuddering beats in the bass, adding to the intensity and near panic of feeling stuck, not knowing what to do, of wanting to put off the inevitable when you might need to say a final goodbye to a relationship. It's a profoundly beautiful piece of brooding electronica and, actually, you really can sing along to it. Music magazines are pretty much a relic of a bygone era, where once, back in the 90s, news agents seemed to be filled with music periodicals and weeklies, The Enemy, Melody Maker, Smash It, Kerrang, Q, Mojo, Uncut, Select, Vox, and probably quite a few others. These days, it's pretty much slim pickings, with the surviving publications going down the heritage route, with an endless cycle of The Beatles, Bob Dylan, and David Bowie, taking the role of cover stars each month. 
There is, of course, nothing wrong at all with the Beatles, Bob Dylan and David Bowie, which is probably the point. In a world where there's so much competition from free-to-access content on the internet, it's kind of understandable that Mojo and Uncut feel the need to play it safe in luring in readers with regular profiles of the artists formerly known as the Quarrymen, Robert Zimmerman and David Jones. Nevertheless, I remain a committed reader of Mojo magazine in particular, always making a beeline first for the crossword and then the review section. For me, it's a magazine to be read backwards. And I will always be sure to get my hands on the final edition of the year, where 75 of what they feel are the best albums of the year are listed in reverse order of amazingness. It's an opportunity to play album collectors bingo, matching up how many of the albums I bought over the year appear on their list. Appropriately enough for someone who makes podcasts themed around making a choice of 10 musical items, there was a decalogue of albums released in 2022 that I bought or acquired in 2022 and matched up with records from Mojo's list of the best of 2022 by the point I'd bought the magazine. Just in case you're interested, these were Björk's Fossora, Midlakes for the Sake of Bethel Woods, Yardak's The Overload, Gweno's Tressor, Kate Le Bon's Pompeii, Beth Orton's Weather Alive, Skinty Fia by Fontaine's DC, probably my favourite album of the year to be honest, Suede's Autofiction, Arctic Monkeys The Car, and Wet Legs' debut eponymous outing. Mojo's own choice of the very best of 2022 may not have agreed with mine, but the write-up they gave it pretty much demanded that the next album I bought would be Dear Scott by Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band. It's a rich, engrossing record, the kind of thing you could listen to repeatedly for a week without getting bored, which is, I believe, exactly what I did. We've met Michael Head on these podcasts before, twice in fact, and on both occasions in reference to the band he fronted in the late 90s and early noughties, Shack. You can hear me wax lyrical about comedy from the album HMS Fable on episode 3, a retrospective, as I recall, of the great and the good of the lineup of the Reading 2000 Festival. And then you can fast forward to episode 52, which focused on Liverpudlian bands and artists, for which I selected the Shack song Neighbours. Anyway, I digress ever so slightly. Dear Scott, the 2022 album, is a gorgeous, gorgeous album in which Head does what he does best, cramming beautifully crafted short stories into the space of just shy of four minutes worth of song, all delivered with that beautifully gnarled Scouse accent that locates Michael Head's place of origin almost down to the postcode. Dear Scott takes its name from a postcard F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote to himself in the late 1930s while trying desperately to make a living from the burgeoning Hollywood movie business and simultaneously get himself off the booze in a hotel named after its owner, the Russian actress Alla Nazimova, a magnet for the biggest stars of the silver screen to use as a base. Dear Scott, his postcard reads, how are you? Have been meaning to come in and see you. I have been living in the Garden of Allah. Yours, Scott Fitzgerald. It's easy to see how Michael Head, 
a musician with a history of heroin and alcohol addiction, together with countless other traumas, would have found much to identify with in that little story. An artist trying to straighten himself out to get back in tune with himself and come up with some profound piece of creativity at the same time. In the edition of Mojo where Dear Scott was unveiled as their album of the year, he explained in an interview that the word in the Chinese language that means crisis also means opportunity. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially for this period. And it does make a lot of sense. There's always been something of the phoenix about Michael Head and his music. It was there when the master tapes for a Shack album, Water Pistol, were destroyed in a studio fire only for the backup copies to be left in an American hire car and miraculously appear a couple of years later. And it's here again too. Despite all the many pitfalls of his life to date, Michael Head has emerged with a brilliantly crafted record full of soul. Perhaps that's why the opening song on the album is called Kismet. There's a beautiful sounding optimism to the record. Dear Scott beautifully melds a classic jangling Merseyside sound with a rich American West Coast feel. There are sonorous strings, gorgeously parping trumpets and mellifluous flourishes on the flute. Lyrically, it focuses on moments in characters' lives. A woman in PR hitting a crossroads in her life in fluke. A pair of buskers who are utterly head over heels in love with each other in Grace and Eddie. And a female drug smuggler in The Grass. But for this episode... Let's go with the song Broken Beauty from the album, which summarises the feel of the whole record and perhaps Michael Head's experience to date. He's singing about someone else, a woman he once knew who he's encountered again, just in passing. But he could just as easily be singing about himself, someone who is back on their feet after a long struggle in the past and having to fight off the detractors, the mother superiors, you should not ever be allowed to win. Perhaps broken beauty is the most profound kind of beauty there is. I'm a 
as this episode has already featured two contributions by individual members of Blur, we might as well go the whole hog and finish off with a song from the band which gave Graham Coxon and Dave Roundtree their most well-known musical home. Blur were my gateway drug to an absolute obsession with music. I became obsessed with them at the height of Britpop, at the peak of the battle of the bands between Blur and Oasis. Country House may seem like little more than a musical joke these days, and The Great Escape, the album from which it is drawn, has not aged particularly well, but at the time it felt fresh, exciting and invigorating. Until that point, I'd barely paid attention to any pop or rock, immersing myself either in Christian worship songs or the greatest hits of the swing jazz legend Glenn Miller. Blur's Country House was the point where all that changed, and there was no looking back. I soon entered an exciting world of indie music, starting off with the era's usual suspects, Blur, Pulp, Supergrass, The Manic Street Preachers, and obviously Oasis. The music sounded fun, optimistic and playful. I loved it. Of course, much of the content of these songs was far more acerbic than the sugar-coated melodies of Country House, Disco 2000 and Kevin Carter, for example, first suggested. Hidden beneath the surface, Britpop's lyrics were nowhere near as buoyant and hopeful as they pretended to be, conveying biting critiques of suburban boredom via British class divisions through to the full-scale horror of world poverty. It wouldn't be long before the froth would be scraped off and the musicians involved would end up embracing a musical style that would more readily reflect a millennial mood. Think Blur's eponymous album, think Pulp's This Is Hardcore, think about the album that most spectacularly epitomises the bursting of the Britpop bubble circa 1997, Radiohead's OK Computer. But for the time being, for the final song on this episode, let's rewind five years back to 1992. The band obviously is Blur, the song, maybe less obviously, is Pop Scene. Pop Scene was a non-album single released between the band's debut album Leisure and their second long player outing, Modern Life is Rubbish, and it perfectly captures the metamorphosis that is happening between those two records. Leisure was a baggy influenced album lurching between the hedonism of a new band believing they can conquer the world and the swampy sound of gloom, doom and general moroseness, the most obvious example being Sing, which I profiled elsewhere with reference to its appearance on the Trainspotting soundtrack. By the time Modern Life is Rubbish came along, there was a much clearer focus. From the name of the album through to the perfectly captured thumbnail portraits of the characters in the songs, Colin Zeal, Pressure on Julian, Miss America, together with Sunday Sunday and Chemical World, there was a much clearer sense of who Blur were, where they were coming from and what they had to say. They were now champions of carrying on a very British sense of pop music by way of rebellion against American grunge that celebrated the traditions of the likes of the Beatles to a certain extent, but more obviously the Kinks and the Small Faces. See also Madness, The Jam and The Smiths. Pop scene, that single bereft of an album to call it home, points the way forward to this very English kind of indie pop, featuring the Kick Horns, who would go on to appear on the band's next three albums. There are no named characters in pop scene, 
no Colin Zeal, Tracy Jacks or Dan Abnormal. In fact, rather than the third person descriptions common to many of Blur's songs from their following triptych of albums, this is all delivered in the first person. My lack of natural luster now seems to be losing me friends. So in the absence of a way of life, I'll repeat this again and again and again. But the familiar themes are all there. Boredom, restlessness, dreaming of a better life. This is where we can trace the roots of other Blur songs like Stereotypes, Country House, Sunday Sunday, End of a Century and Tracy Jacks. The theory goes that the song is an attack on the homogenous nature of the music industry at the time. It stands to reason given the title of the song, but it is also possible that this analysis has been retrofitted to the song in light of the poor reception the song received and how the band reacted to this. It was Nirvana that really fucked pop scene up, said Graham Coxon when looking back at this point in the band's past. I'd go as far as saying that pop scene is about more than just a frustration with the homogeneity of the music industry. It's about a frustration with the homogeneity of life in general, repetition, imitation, a lack of natural luster. There's a desire for a great escape, to stop being caught in the rat race terminally. The chorus represents that hedonistic longing to get away from it all, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we'll be trapped in the same old rut. And that, really, is what Britpop was all about. Dreaming of escape, boredom with the greyness of John Major's Britain. It's a spectacular whirlwind of a song, working itself up into a right old frenzy, not just courtesy of the traditional guitar, drum and bass, not even just courtesy of Damon Albarn's staccato delivery, but also courtesy of the debut appearance of the Kickhorns, adding an extra splash of colour to proceedings. This then is pop scene. Alright. So there you have it, 10 more songs in the key of a few of my favourite things at the moment. I hope you enjoyed them. Let me know what you thought by responding to the post for this episode on Instagram. Just look for songs in the key of. I'm always on the lookout for new songs to listen to, enjoy and talk about. So if you're a singer, songwriter, band member or just a good old fashioned music fan, please do drop me a line with your recommendation of things to listen to and share. I'll be back sooner or later with some more songs in the key of something or other else. In the meantime, have a marvellous few days and nights till we meet again. <laughs>